Hi, good morning. I'll be reading from Mark 15, 16 through 32. <clears throat> and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they were called together the whole, they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They pitted on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put, it, put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, um, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. <clears throat> and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to, de to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to, to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Crucifixion is undoubtedly one of the, the most cruel, inhumane methods of torture and death ever devised by man. When someone is crucified, they begin by stretching out the victim's hands onto a crossbeam, whereby they proceed to nail uh, these iron nails into either the palm or the wrist, depending on various records. They would then take that crossbeam and hoist it up and attach it to the vertical beam, which was already standing into the ground. They would then proceed to take the right foot and place it on top of the left foot, and, and, and take a, a single nail and drive it either through the shin bone or the, the feet. At that point, many believe that victims of crucifixion die from bleeding. But that's actually not true. In crucifixion, you died by exhaustion. Or more specifically, you died by asphyxiation. You see, when nailed to the cross, the victim's body is slumped forward, creating a lot of pressure on the lungs, making it very difficult 
for you to breathe. And so in order to take a breath, the, the victim would have to push on with his legs and push his body back, relieving the pressure, enabling them to then take a breath. But as you can imagine, pushing up with your legs was extremely painful. Because why? Because of the nail in the feet. And so victims would go through this agonizing process over and over again, which is the reason why crucifixion was so cruel. It was cruel not only because of its publicity, as you have crowds of people gawking at you, but it's cruel because of the agonizingly slow way to die. Some victims would take days before they die. And this is why when Rome wanted to quicken someone's death, they would break that criminal's legs, making it virtually impossible to raise yourself and take a breath. Now, the reason why we know so much about the method of crucifixion and the details of crucifixion is actually not because of the Bible. When you read the Gospels, especially when you read Mark's gospel, they don't give many details about the process of crucifixion. In fact, in, in Mark's gospel, all he writes when it comes to crucifixion is found in verse 24, which reads, and they crucified him. Mark doesn't explain that they nailed his hands and feet to the cross, Mark doesn't describe the blood that must have been coming forth from Jesus' wounds. He doesn't tell us about the various lashes he received from his scourging. He doesn't describe to us how labored Jesus' breathing must have been. None of these details are found. The only reason why we know about the process of crucifixion is because of extra-biblical accounts, whether it be the accounts of historians in Jesus' day or archaeological discoveries within uh, recent memory. But here in Mark's gospel, there's no mention of that. And this is somewhat surprising, isn't it? When you and I picture crucifixion, usually what we're thinking of is the physical torment, the physical trauma that these victims experienced. So why does Mark gloss over these details? Why do the gospel writers not spend much time describing the physical trauma of crucifixion? Some argue it's because they're writing to an audience that already knew what crucifixion was all about. They're, they're writing to an audience that was already intimately familiar with Rome's execution methods. But I think there's more to that. You see, I believe Mark wants us to focus not so much on the pain of the cross, but rather, Mark wants us to focus on the shame of the cross. You see, for Mark, the horror of Jesus' death is not so much his pain as much as it is his shame. 
And so what is shame? I think we need to spend some time understanding shame because it's one of those emotions. We all know what it is when we experience it, but it's really hard to describe and explain, right? Shame is that that feeling of of ice-cold water just kind of washing over you, making you feel dead on the inside, right? Shame, according to Alistair Groves and Winston Smith, is defined as this. Shame is the conscious or unconscious belief that deep down you are unworthy of connection. In other words, it's that belief that you have about yourself that if someone gets to know the real you, if someone were to discover what you've done or who you are, they will reject you. They'll find you unworthy of their love. Now, I want you to know that contrary to what our culture says about shame, not all shame is bad. We live in a day where people often say that any form or feeling of shame, you need to get rid of it. It's not good for you. Shame is actually a gift from God. It operates much the same way as pain does for our bodies. Pain, even though it's painful and we don't like to feel pain, it's actually quite useful. It keeps you alive. Pain tells you that there's something wrong with your body, that your hand is burning or that your bone is broken and that you need to address that pain. In the same way, shame tells us that there's something wrong with our souls. There's something wrong with us spiritually, that we've done something wrong that needs correction. It's God's way of alerting us to the severity of sin. That's why in the Bible, shamelessness is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. The wicked are described as those who are shameless. They could care less about the morality of their actions. They could care less about God's law. Of course, there is such a thing as toxic shame. Not all shame is healthy. Some shame stem not from things we have done, but they stem from simply living in a fallen world. Some people could feel shame because they look different or perhaps because they have an accent or perhaps because they're the only ethnicity in the room of 100 people. They feel different. They feel shame. Other people can feel shame because they grew up in a broken home. You show up on Father's Day at school, and you're the only one without a father, and so you feel shame. Others feel shame because they were sexually violated by someone. They feel dirty. They feel unworthy. They feel shame. Now, shame is fundamentally relational. It's a communal emotion. What I mean is that when you feel shame, the first thoughts that come to mind is, does anyone know? Can anyone see me? 
the first thing that shame makes you want to do is hide, to conceal yourself from others. Because again, shame is the fear that if other people see you, they're going to reject you. And so to avoid that rejection, you withdraw yourself from community. When I think of shame, I think of that scene in the movie Princess Bride. In, in the Princess Bride, Princess Buttercup has a nightmare. In her nightmare, she gets married to Prince Humperdinck. I love the names in that movie. She gets married to Prince Humperdinck, and they announce the marriage to the, uh, to the people. And so she emerges out of a tunnel into a courtyard where hundreds of people are looking. It's announced to everyone, welcome Queen Buttercup. All eyes are on her, and then what happens? This old lady emerges, points her finger at her, and says, boo, boo, filth, rubbish, slime. Why? Because she betrayed her first love, Wesley. That's shame coming out in her nightmare. And this is why mockery is so hurtful and painful. When you mock someone, you're not just pointing out something wrong with them. You're making fun of them. You're laughing at them. Normally, mockery comes through imitation, where you act like the person, or you imitate the way they talk, and you do so in a sarcastic manner. What is more, when you mock someone, it's, it's kind of a, a communal activity. When you mock someone, that, that the mocker looks to, for his friends to see what he's doing so that they could join in on the laughter, so that they could make fun of the person for the same thing you see. So as you can see, mockery then is, is a form of shaming someone. It compounds your shame. It adds to their shame. It calls attention for everyone to see, look at how different this person is. Look at what this person has done. Let's all reject this person together. And so for the victim of mockery, it's got to be one of the worst feelings in the world when you see everyone pointing their finger, laughing at your weakness, it makes you want to just crumble up and die. Well, here in our scripture reading, what we have is layer after layer of Jesus being shamed. Layer after layer of Jesus being mocked. There are five ways Jesus is mocked. First, the soldiers mock Jesus. A battalion of soldiers gather around him and decide to have some fun. They mock him for claiming to be the king of the Jews. Jesus, you're the king of the Jews? Okay, we'll treat you as a king. Every good king must wear a robe, and so let's put this purple cloak on you. Oh, 
you're missing a crown. Guys, let's, let's, let's find a crown for our king, not a golden crown. We're going we're gonna to create a crown of thorns. Oh, wait, there's still something missing. Where's your scepter? Every king needs to have a scepter. And so Matthew tells us that they find a reed and they place it at his hand. Oh, now here's the king. And they then go through the process one by one of bowing before him in jest. And as they bow before him, they they say, Hail, king of the Jews. And then one soldier picks up the reed and strikes him across the head. The next soldier's turn bow before you, hail king of the Jews, and he spits in his face one by one, over and over again, in mock homage, they make fun of Jesus. The so-called king of the Jews is turned into a jester, providing a measure of entertainment for these bored soldiers. Laughter and snickering fills the air as they sarcastically bow before their king. But the mockery doesn't end there. Rome also mocks Jesus. Pilate mocks Jesus. Verse 26 tells us that an inscription was fastened above the head of Jesus, which read, the king of the Jews. This was not Rome's way of affirming Jesus' identity. This was Rome's way of mocking Jesus. Behold the king of the Jews. What a bloody mess he is. Unrecognizable, barely breathing. A king so weak, hanging naked, all alone. And the mockery does not end there. In verse 29, strangers join in on the fun. Strangers who pass by the cross. Remember, all this happens during the feast of of Passover. You have thousands of Jews making their way into the city of Jerusalem. And so, As they make their pilgrimage, they pass by the cross, and some of these passerbys see Jesus dying, and they decide to mock him as well. You who claim to rebuild the temple in three days, you cannot even save yourself. You're all talk, Jesus. And oh, what big talk you made calling yourself the Messiah, calling yourself the Son of Man, calling yourself the Great I Am. All talk, and it amounts to nothing. I can't even believe that at one point I actually thought you were the Messiah. What a joke. And the mockery doesn't end there. In verses 31 through 32, now it's the chief priests and the scribes' turn. You can picture the the smiles on their faces. 
You can picture them gloating. Their master plan to kill Jesus has finally come to fruition. And so Mark records for us them saying, he saved others, yet he can't save himself. They're they're talking about the, the healings that Jesus performed. He can heal others, but look at him. And then they say something particularly cruel. In verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. In other words, Jesus, let's make a deal. I will worship you. I'll bow down before you. All you need to do is come down from that cross. Oh, wait. Looks like there's nails in your hands and your feet. Looks like you can't come down. You could hear them laughing in jest. And yet the mockery doesn't end there. Just when you thought there's no one left to make fun of Jesus, we see in verse 32 that even the robbers crucified to Jesus right and left, they too revile him. Now, when the soldiers and the chief priests and the scribes, when Rome mocks Jesus, that's to be expected. But we don't expect the robbers who are experiencing the same punishment that Jesus is experiencing to join in. If anything, you expect the robbers to to empathize with Jesus to band together with him, to comfort Jesus, defend Jesus. But no, these robbers see Jesus as beneath them. They point their finger at Jesus and say, you are worse than us. Virtually everyone mocks Jesus, shames Jesus, from the military to the royalty, from the religious establishment to complete strangers to even the convicted criminal, everyone points their finger at Jesus and says, boo, filth, rubbish. What a joke of a king. But here's the deep irony of it all. Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah, the son of the living God. They, of course, refuse to believe it because in their minds, a true king never loses. A true king is never weak. A true king is never overpowered. He overpowers others. A true king would never be crucified. And this is how the world thinks of kings. When we picture a king, we think of someone who is at the top of the totem pole. When we picture a king, we picture a king who is powerful and uses his power in such a way where those beneath him serve him. 
do things for him, do things that he doesn't want to do for himself. I think of movies like Braveheart or Gladiator. There's always that scene where you have two armies battling against each other. It's usually really gruesome in the way they depict it. People are losing limbs. People are dying. They're having their heads crushed in. And then the director pans out and shifts. And what do you see perched on top of a cliff, watching from afar in safe confines? You have the king. Safely washing from a distance, his men fighting and losing their lives for him. That's what we think a king does. But that's not how the Bible sees true kingship. In the Bible, a true king does not have people fight for him. Rather, in the Bible, a king loves his people so much that he's on the front lines fighting for his people. Let me ask you, who is the prototypical king of the Old Testament? The model king. David. Why was he so fit to be the king of Israel? David is God's greatest king because he's also God's greatest warrior. He alone goes toe-to-toe with Goliath, risking his life for the sake of God's people. He is the one who slays thousands upon thousands. He is the mighty warrior of God. When was David the most unkinglike? When he sends Uriah into battle to die to cover up his own purposes. But aside from that, we see David, a true king, modeling someone who puts the interests of his people before himself. And this principle of a a sacrificial leader is still embedded in our culture today. In 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 carrying 150 passengers, departed LaGuardia Airport, where it then flew into a flock of geese, damaging both engines. The captain of the plane, Captain Sully Sullenberger, decided to make an emergency landing on the Hudson River to land a plane on water. Miraculously, they landed safely with minimal injuries to the passengers and crew. Can you guess who was the last person to step off that plane? Captain Sully. He became a hero and symbol of what a true leader looks like. On the flip side, on April 16, 2014, A ferry ship in Korea capsized and sank, killing 306 people, most of whom were high schoolers. It was a national tragedy, but what added outrage to this accident 
was when people discovered that the captain and the crew were one of the first ones to leave that ship. In the human heart is this understanding that a true leader risks himself for the sake of his people, not the other way around. A true leader sacrifices himself for his people. Dear friends, this is why Jesus hangs on the cross. Far from contradicting his kingship, diminishing his kingship, obscuring his kingship, the cross proves and amplifies that Jesus is the greatest king of all kings. The cross proves that he is the true king that we need and long for. There was no more kingly, more regal moment in Jesus' life than when he suffered on the cross. Because on the cross, he was putting the interests and welfare of his people before himself. He was forgiving them, securing them, redeeming them. You see, the greatest enemy that you and I face, the greatest threat that humanity faces is the reality and devastation of sin and shame. All of us here know deep down in our hearts that we are worthy of rejection. We're worthy of rejection. All of us here know what shame feels like. And you know what? For the healthy biblical type of shame, that shame speaks truth. If I were to somehow miraculously capture your life on video, everything you've ever done in public, in private, everything you've ever said to your loved ones or to a stranger, every thought you have ever thunk, is that a word, thunk? Every thought you've ever made, If I capture that on video and started playing your life on this screen, I guarantee you'd walk out of this room embarrassed. Me too. Why? Because we know there's going to be stuff played on that screen that makes us worthy of rejection. And if that is true, when played in front of an audience of people, how much more true when played before the audience of a holy, righteous God? Question is, what do we do with our shame? We all know we're worthy of rejection. We all have that feeling inside that if fully exposed, People are going to to mock us, reject us, judge us. What do we do with this shame? Got some choices for you. One, you can dismiss it. You can convince yourself, there's nothing to be ashamed about. I haven't done anything wrong. 
I'm actually a pretty good person. And just convince yourself, delude yourself that you're a perfect person. Others deflect it. You know what? I am the way I am. I did what I did because of my parents. It's my parents' fault. It's capitalism's fault. It's the system's fault. It's the video game's fault. Too many violent video games made me pull the trigger. Some of us will distract our shame. Instead of allowing ourselves to feel the shame, we constantly distract ourselves with mindless entertainment whether through gaming, through shopping, through Netflix binging, through reading the news, through watching the stocks, we're constantly busying our minds so that it does not look into our shame. Others of us will numb the shame. Sleeping pills, alcohol, drugs. But here's the problem with numbing. You can't numb one emotion. If you numb your shame, you're going to numb your joy, your peace, your happiness. Most of us cover our shame. We're like Adam and Eve. Remember what they did when God appears in the garden and they're feeling shame? What do they do? They get some fig leaves and cover themselves. We all have our fig leaves to try to cover our shame. We cover it with nice cars, nice homes, vacations, nice clothes, designer bags, and shoes. We cover it with an active social life, with family, friends, our, our Instagram page. We hide behind our degrees, our accomplishments, our awards, our financial bank account. We hide behind our children, our careers. We, we hide behind anything and everything as long as people don't see us. But here's the problem. Though we can hide from others, we cannot hide from ourselves. At the end of the day, when you stare into the mirror, you know you. And you cannot hide from God. God sees into our hearts and sees how lazy we are, how lustful we are, how greedy, how materialistic, how shallow, how selfish how anxious, how ungrateful. But this is why Jesus hangs on the cross. He hangs on the cross to take away our shame, to take away our sin. You see, the chief priests and the scribes say something that came close to echoing eternal truth. In their attempt to mock Jesus, they actually come close to saying that was something beautiful. They, they taunt Jesus by saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. But here's the deeper truth. If Jesus is to save others, he must not save himself. 
If Jesus is to save us from our shame, it means he must take our shame. He must remain on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus had to make a choice. Do I save myself or do I save my people? And praise God that he chose us. On the cross, Jesus was rejected by God, banished. What's interesting is the Bible makes clear that Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, which everyone knew stood outside the walls of Jerusalem. It took place outside the city gates. What happened to Adam and Eve after they fell? They were pushed outside the Garden of Eden. They were no longer worthy to dwell in the holy presence of God, represented by the boundaries of Eden. So they're pushed outside. Jesus is pushed outside as he takes our shame on himself. He is rejected so that we would be accepted. He's excluded so that we would be included. And the book of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 13, verse 12, when it says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Dear friends, what will you do with your shame? You can distract it, you can deny it, you can numb it, you can try to cover it up, but I pray that you will go to Jesus, our shame taker. Go to him and recognize him as your king, as the true king of kings and lord of lords. He is the only answer to our shame. He is the only one who can take it away from us. And the beauty of the gospel is that when we hide ourselves in Jesus, when God looks at us, not only is he no longer not ashamed of us, I don't know how many negatives there are there, but he sees the righteousness of Christ on us. And he is proud. And he is glowing. He is rejoicing and delighting over you. That is a beautiful place to be, to be hiding in Jesus. And that is my prayer for all of us here. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts and help us to see through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus' humiliation is actually his exaltation. To see that the shame he bears is actually his glory, that there is no more kingly act 
he's ever done than to die for the sake of his people. I pray, O oh Lord, for all of us here who struggle with shame, who know that we are fundamentally flawed because of sin. Lord, help us to make the right choice. Help us to turn to you, the only one who can take our shame away forever. And so may we turn to you, cast our shame on you, and experience your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.